Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. It is almost Resurrection Sunday, just a couple of weeks now. We are going to do uh, one of my favorite topics today, and it's, it's an important one, and that is a survey of dispensationalism and covenant theology. Now, before you say, wait a minute, I didn't come here to uh, take a nap, this is this is important. This really comes down to the core of how we view Scripture and how we view the entire Bible. And if you're if you're wondering why this uh, might have anything to do with you, covenant theology represents the beliefs of like-minded brothers and sisters in the Reformed theology tradition. And we want to be very very clear about that. But there's some major areas that we would have disagreement about, particularly how you even interpret the Bible. And so we want to be clear, we want to be loving, but in the name of love, we don't, we don't avoid truth. So we want to be as truthful as we can <clears throat> while being loving. This is not an attempt to uh, be heady or to be intellectual, but some intellectualism is necessary to understand Scripture and to understand why you believe what you believe. So let me give you some introductory thoughts, and then we'll pray, and then I'll I'll do that, actually. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning looking at the depths of the riches of your truths. We want to be diligent students of the Word, Lord. We want to be those that diligently avoid deception, avoid things that are not true, avoid any authority beyond Scripture. There is no other authority. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth of Scripture, of sound doctrine that comes from Scripture. And so we ask you this morning, Lord, to help us to engage our minds, to learn about our great and awesome God, to learn about the great and awesome Word that you have given us. Help us this day, Lord, to to think clearly, to think about these truths that are magnificent, that are important, and that really um, propel us forward in how we even view the Bible and how we view the future, how we view uh, your revelation to us. So I pray this is helpful to all listening to this, Lord, and that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So let me give you some kind of introductory necessary thoughts. Just to be very clear about this. First of all, nothing I'm going to talk about today and, and probably next week, none of these are salvation issues. Covenant theology has a rich history of men and women who love Christ, uh, from John Calvin to R.C. Sproul and many in between. Um, We would say that almost all, if not all, of the original reformers were covenantal. I'll I'll show you, though, that some of it is is a leftover from Catholicism, which we don't... Most people forget that almost all the reformers were were retired Catholic priests. So they brought some Catholicism with them. That's That's just natural. We understand that. It's also important that we understand that we are in complete agreement in important doctrines, particularly the area of soteriology, the areas of uh, Trinitarian theology, and that salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same, and that is by faith. So we're, we're in complete agreement there, and, and we should celebrate that. I would also say this is a good exercise in not getting angry when someone doesn't believe exactly the way you believe. That, that's one of the signs of our maturity, isn't it? That, that you don't have to surround yourself with the four people that believe exactly what you believe. 
there are variations, and we, we have those variations uh, in, in love. Um, one of my professors in seminary uh, used to say, you can disagree, just don't be disagreeable, and that that's okay. I would also say this. It, it, it's, I think, proven very difficult for a covenant theologian to accurately portray dispensationalism and frankly, it's been vice versa as well. What that means is as much as I will attempt to be objective, uh, some would disagree with my presentation. But I will also disagree with those who think they're presenting dispensationalism primarily because they always uh, tend to quote sources that are over 100 years old. And you say, have you read nobody in the last century on this topic? And so I will do my best, but as, you know, before the Lord, I'm trying to portray them accurately because it's... Um, it's an intellectual fallacy, and it's, I, frankly, sinful to represent somebody's viewpoint uh, wrongly and then attempt to take it down. That's not okay. You represent their viewpoint with accuracy because that is uh, the spirit of, of brotherhood to do that. A, a fifth necessary thought, both covenant theology and dispensationalism are a little difficult to define because there's so many variations there, there are so many developments, so many mutations. My preference is to simply take individual issues and assess them uh, with each other rather than trying to find a single name or a category to jam us into. Um, you know, when somebody says, are you dispensational? Well, what do you mean by that? Because I, I'm not going to stick myself into one, one corner. John MacArthur says he's a leaky dispensationalist. What he means by that is that there's holes in the system that he doesn't agree with. And I have a friend that I would say is a, a leaky covenant theologian because he believes a lot of the same stuff that I do. And, and I saw him recently and I said, so in other words, you're a closet dispensationalist. He's like, no, I wouldn't go that far. So it, they're, tar- they're difficult to define. I'll give you an example. Uh, classical dispensationalism, which is ten, ten, what, ten, what covenant theologians tend to think that we're all lumped into this category. Classical dispensationalism says that God has different purposes at different times. We would not subscribe to that. God's purpose has always been the same. They use a term called parenthesis, that the church is a parenthesis in history between the times of God dealing with Israel. I sort of understand that thinking, but that, again, uh, almost sounds like God uh, couldn't hold it together with Israel, so he diverted suddenly to the church, and now then he's going back. There's some truth to that, but but I don't like that... uh, that analogy. Classical dispensationalism says there will be a literal kingdom in heaven and a literal kingdom on earth during the millennial period. Two kingdoms happening at the same time. I don't personally know anybody who believes any of those three things anymore. So that, that's, an, that's an older version. Um, but I also don't think any covenant theologians think that you ought to drown people who baptize believers after salvation because that's what some of them did. Um, they, they believed if you didn't baptize infants, uh, you should go to the stake for that. There, there were murders among theologians because of these issues back in the 15 and 1600s. So I, I don't think any of our covenant theologian brothers would go that far either. So w- one of the things that's difficult is to accept the fact that, and I'm still on number five here, to accept the fact that progress in theology has been made, that we have learned. First uh, Timothy 4.15, uh, Paul tells Timothy to let your progress be evident 
to all. So, so when somebody says, well, I prefer a source that's 300 years old. So all the men and women who have studied the Word of God for the last 300 years are all idiots and have nothing to contribute whatsoever. I wouldn't say that at all. I think we have more theological precision and accuracy now than we ever have before. And, and you might say, well, but truth has always been the same. That is true. We just haven't had an extensive a knowledge of the truth as we have now because we've learned. So, uh, for example, in the first 200 years of the church, the deity of Christ was never questioned. And then all of a sudden, the deity of Christ began to be questioned. The humanity of Christ began to be questioned. Uh, theological questions started being asked and answered. Uh, we have great church councils that took a stand on these issues. Why did it take several hundred years? Historically, it's because Christians were spending their time running for their lives for 200 years. So there wasn't time to have big theological conferences. And if you did, they were rounded up and killed. So that just didn't tend to happen. So we've learned over time. So when somebody says, uh, and now I'll get to number six, uh, both camps use history as an ally that their belief system is older and therefore correct. That is an absolutely endless argument. If somebody says, well, let's talk about who believed what first. I look at my watch and say, I don't have the rest of my life to do this. There's no way. But one example is that covenant theologians often say, and this is their default position, I would say, and, and I've read dozens of men on this topic. They would say that dispensationalism was invented in the early 1800s by a man named John Nelson Darby. Darby did organize thoughts in a way others had not, but he didn't invent the system uh, whatsoever. Number seven citing historical figures who believe one way or another as proof of correctness is an invalid argument. This is what's called the fallacy of authority, of argument from authority. That because a guy who agrees with me died a hundred years before the guy who agrees with you, I must be right. No, it just means he was born earlier. That, that's all that means. Uh, I prefer to defer to guys who died about 2,000 years ago called apostles. Uh, those are the ones I'll defer to. So that's an endless argument and a lot of ink has been spilled over uh, whose history goes back the farthest. But just so you know, dispensationalism does. But <laughs> there we go. <clears throat> because I can, show you, I can show you sources from 100 AD that are dispensational. So, but it doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? So uh, what I want to do, and I don't know how far we'll get today, I want to just walk through covenant theology and walk through dispensationalism without any, uh, without any evaluation or critique. And then we'll come back and do evaluation and critique. We'll just get as far as we can. Uh, I'm not in a big hurry. So let's talk about covenant theology first. And again, just, a, j- just to, have, to uh, give it some definition for you to understand it without any critique here. Just to give a definition, first of all, it's it's a system of interpreting the scriptures on the basis of two and some hold to three covenants. The covenant of the works, the covenant of grace, and others include a third covenant, the covenant of redemption. Covenant of the works, covenant of the grace, and and the covenant of redemption. There's some key elements here, and and this this is a good lesson in discerning specifics of our faith. Professing Christians are not neatly divided into two camps of everyone who has it together and those who are heretics. That, we're not neatly divided that way, okay? So we have to be as, as precise as we can. But here's just a few key elements. 
The eternal covenant of the redemption is between the Father and the Son. There's involvement of the Holy Spirit as well. We have the federal headship of Adam, and we would agree with that. By the way, that's something we have in common. Federal headship is why Christ is called the second Adam, that in Adam all die. That's federal headship. You have the element of the unity of the covenant of grace. What, what, what that means is that all other covenants in the Bible come under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. And then you have the major element of justification by faith. And of course, we agree with that as well. So let's walk through these covenants just briefly. The covenant of works, according to the Westminster Confession, quote, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So in other words, the covenant of the works was that God told Adam, you will live forever if you perform certain conditions, if you maintain your perfection for a, uh, what they would call a, uh, a, a period of time that's probationary. That period of time is not defined. From our viewpoint, we would say that that is salvation based on works, but uh, covenant theologians would disagree with that assessment. They would say Adam didn't have a need to be saved. He just had a need to hang on to what God had already given to him. So we would disagree on, on defining that. And by the way, it's okay to say, well, we're just going to agree to disagree theologically when it's not a, a salvation issue. That's totally fine. And so what this covenant of the works says is that it was made with Adam before the fall of man. And according to uh, one theologian, his name is Osterhaven, he said it consisted of three things, this covenant did. One, and I'm quoting him, a promise of eternal life upon the condition of perfect obedience throughout a probationary period. Two, the threat of death upon disobedience. And three, the sacrament of the tree of life. Now, you're hearing things that you agree with. And, and, and I understand that. I agree with much of that. But uh, as we'll see shortly, getting to the point of the definition of a covenant um, gets a little bit overly specific. The scriptural support they would give, and there's not a lot, would be Hosea 6 verse 7, which refers to the sins of Israel. It says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. This is argued that this passage views Adam as existing in a covenant relationship that he then transgressed in the Garden of Eden. And the book of Romans would say this, but probably not in the covenant terms that, that we're used to thinking of. Paul sees both Adam and Christ as representative heads. This is totally consistent with the idea of Adam being in a covenant before the fall. Uh, Romans five twelve through 21. And so the covenant of the works is never defined in Scripture, but it is implied. That's what they would say, that there's an implication there. Um, I would urge you to compare implied covenants with actual covenants because actual covenants in Scripture are extremely detailed and they have signs and they have seasons and they have uh, stipulations. They have laws attached to them, uh, very specific things. So that's the covenant of the works. Then you have the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, according to uh, covenant theology, Adam, the federal head of the human race, failed the covenant of works. And so as a result, God then went to plan B. He instituted another covenant, the covenant of the grace. This is allegedly a covenant made before God, between God and the elect after the fall, in which salvation is given to those who trust Christ by faith. 
This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the covenant and the grace. Westminster Confession of Faith is very useful. It's a good tool, but we would agree with about 80% of it, but not the other 20. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant and the grace. Do I have this up here? Do you see that phrase right there? Commonly called. Just so you know, that is a reference to what human beings name something that is not listed in Scripture. So we have to be really careful about that. One thing that covenant theologians like to do is to list things in Latin as if that makes them true. Uh, It just makes them harder to understand. It doesn't make them true. Wherein he freely offered unto sinners salvation, life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him. That's true. That they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So we, we agree with all of that except this part about, well, where is the covenant of grace? Where is that? So you might ask, well, if it's so important, where is it? what they would say is that the covenant of grace is manifested in all the other covenants in scripture. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. And so they would say there's a significant continuity between the covenants of scripture since they're all outworkings of the alleged covenant of grace. In other words, uh, when we would say that there's a significant difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, they would say that they're actually way more similar. Scriptural support they would give is any passage which speaks of salvation by grace or of the New Covenant. Uh, I, I think that when the Bible talks about the New Covenant, it's specific about the New Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ. So that's, again, for me, is a stretch. And then you have the Covenant of the Redemption. And if you were going to believe in any of them, this would be the one. Um, I, I think there's, there's more truth to this one than any of the others. But we wouldn't call it a covenant, and I'll, I'll explain why. Many covenant theologians affirm the, the third covenant, the covenant of the redemption. This is a covenant that supposedly took place in eternity past between the members of the Trinity. The theologian Louis Burkhoff, he says it this way. The covenant of the redemption may be defined as the agreement between the Father, giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given him. So according to covenant theology, the Father commissioned the Son to be the Savior. The Son accepted the commission, agreeing to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God. And they give quite a bit of scriptural support at least offered by Reformed theologians to verify the existence of this covenant. We have passages such as Isaiah 49, 6-8, Luke twenty-two, twenty-nine. Did I list any of those up there? No, I didn't. Um, so I'll just read you a couple of them. Regarding the Father, the Father fixed to give to the Son a people whom the Son would redeem for His own possession. That's John seventeen two, John seventeen six to send the Son to be the federal head. We believe that, John 3.16, or Romans 5, and so forth. Uh, Regarding the Son, Scripture does point to an agreement with the Father that He would come into the world as a man and live as a man under the Mosaic Law. Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born under the law. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 and following explains this as well. He would be obedient to all the commands of the Father. Hebrews 10 Verses 7 and following, he would be obedient even unto death, even death on the cross. Philippians 
And then regarding the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit agreed to do the will of the Father and fill and empower Christ to carry out His ministry on earth. Uh, Matthew 3.16, Luke 4. And to apply the benefits of Christ's redemptive work to His people after Christ returned to heaven. So the sending of the Holy Spirit was a, was a preordained event. And I would probably agree with that. Is it a covenant in the sense of the other biblical covenants? Well, we'll see. So those are the big ones. But... Let me give you some of the other beliefs often found, not always, but often found in covenant theology. And by the way, the reason that uh, one of the reasons this might be important for us here is that um, Grace Bible Church stands nearly alone as a dispensational church in, in Kern County. Um, there are very few. Um, there's, a, there's a bucket load of covenant theolo- theology churches, and that's fine. And we agree on the same gospel, and we're thankful for that. But just to be clear, there are distinctions here. Other beliefs often found in covenant theology. Affirmation of Reformed theology. Things like a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. We would, we would completely agree with that. New Testament priority. That the New Testament has logical priority over the Old Testament. That the New Testament is, and here's the key, the interpreter and the reinterpreter of the Old Testament. That things that the Old Testament used to mean now no longer mean that anymore. Uh, probably the biggest one would be the land promises to Israel. That those no longer mean actual land. And if you, if you read covenant theology uh, texts, when they talk about land, um, they actually use very denigrating terms. They, they use things like a, a small piece of real estate in the Middle East. Whereas God calls it the promised land. I think there's a big difference between that view. So they would say that the New Testament has priority over the Old Testament. The Old, the, the Old Testament is interpreted by the, the New. They would say that parts of the Mosaic Law are in effect today. That because there's a... Remember I said there's a continuity uh, between all the covenants under the covenant of grace. So they would say that, that a lot of the Mosaic Law carries forward. Um, and they would divide this into what they might call the moral law, that the moral law carries forward. I, I would simply say that the character of God is always the same, and that if he prohibits murder uh, in the old covenant, that is still pre- prevented today, or that's still uh, uh, presented as sin today, not because it's the same covenant, but because that's God's character. And so that's what we would say. They would uh, affirm the division of the law into ceremonial, civil, and moral law. Ceremonial and civil law is gone. The moral law continues. And just to be clear, we can pinpoint in history exactly who came up with that division, and it was in the 1300s. So for 1300 years, the the, the church never believed that. So just a little uh, history there. They would also say that Christ is ruling his kingdom from David's throne currently. That we are essentially in the kingdom of God right now. Uh, and then it'll improve at a later date. And again, there are variations to that view. Uh, my, my particular view is that if we're in the kingdom now, this is really disappointing. I, I think that this kingdom stinks if this is all the kingdom is. So we would, have a, we would have a problem with that. What do they believe about the church? Oh, this is where people get excited. They say that the church existed in the Old Testament with Adam and Abraham. When you read covenantal... Uh, uh, commentaries in Genesis. They call uh, Adam and Eve the church. 
And it, it bothers our sensibilities. And we, we immediately want to go, no, Acts chapter 2 is where the church began. But they, they would call the people of God, one people of God, always the church. They would also say that the church now replaces Israel. Now, I, I wouldn't, if you know somebody who's covenantal, I would not use this phrase because they get really upset about that and they say, no, that's something you guys made up. I, I can show you 20, 30, 40 sources where covenant theologians use the phrase replacement theology or replacing Israel. So no, it doesn't come from us. It comes from their own theological system. Um, Most covenant theologians would adamantly disagree with this. They would say that Israel was the church and the church is now Israel. That there's been a a, a flip-flop, but they wouldn't see it as as a replacement. But that's that's from their literature. Covenant theology has a history of seeing literal Israel virtually swallowed up or displaced by the church or what they call spiritual Israel. That's just a historical fact. Uh, R.C. Sproul, probably uh, in the top three greatest theologians of the 20th century, um, he wrote a little book on the end times. And he's very clear that in 70 A.D., uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem, that showed that God was done with Israel for all time. And that the church, his words, not mine, is now the new Israel. So that's just their literature saying that. It's not something that we're, we're making up. That's, that's what they see it. Now, when you talk to a covenant theologian, uh, somebody who believes this, there's so many variations. Some believe that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of all things Israel. Some believe that the church is the fulfillment of all things Israel. Some believe that the church and Israel coexist together. But when you get to one topic, they all pretty much agree. When you say, well, what about a national Israel reestablished on an actual physical land with borders as the leading nation on earth? At that point, they all say, no way, never going to happen. And they had a pretty good case until 1948. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, it happened once. Um, I'm about to preach through Ezra and Nehemiah starting next week. And Ezra and Nehemiah shows that God is capable of bringing his people back anytime he wants. So that's, that's what it shows. They would also say that the church or Christ uh, is the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel and there's more variations to this than, than I could possibly talk about. Covenant theology doesn't lead to necessarily any particular view of the millennium, of the, of the final uh, kingdom. There are a lot of varieties of views within covenant theology. So those two kind of intersect, but they're not, uh, they're not uh, uh, synonymous with each other. And then we would say that infant baptism, or they would say rather, infant baptism uh, is, is uh, legitimate based on the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. Remember that we said that for them, there's a lot of continuity between old covenant and new covenant. So they baptize infants based on circumcision of infants. Um, and, and then also on the fact that entire households in the New Testament were baptized. Never says infants though. There are zero uh, zero examples of infant baptism in the Bible. Now, again, not all covenant theologians agree with infant baptism. I, 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 most covenant theologians would say we're not reformed because to be truly reformed, you have to believe everything they believe. And, and okay, well, that's fine. But uh, if they don't believe uh, in infant baptism, which a lot of them don't, um, then then the ones who do believe would say they're not reformed. So you got a bunch of finger pointing going on and who's the most reformed, um, meaning who's the most like John Calvin. 
So he's not our, he's not our standard, uh, the scripture is. So that's just kind of a, uh, some of the other beliefs found in covenant theology. How about dispensationalism? Dispensationalism says that God has phases or dispensations in his redemptive plan. And here's some foundational beliefs. And I would say, um, just a little side note here. Originally, dispensationalism was really focused on this idea of dispensations, of periods of time. And we'll talk about that briefly. But there's two major areas where dispensationalism uh, really shines and where it differs with covenant theology. And it's very easy. The first one is hermeneutics, um, how you study the Bible. And the second one is national Israel. Those are our two big differences. And, and you might say, why in Bakersfield, California, are we caring about what happens in Israel probably long after I'm dead? Because God's redemptive plan is centered on Israel. So you, you can't just throw that away. There are 10 major areas of, of Christian theology and, and, and many are pushing to add an 11th called Israelology because it's so neglected. It's so just kind of woven into other things. But here's some of our foundational beliefs. Hermeneutics. We use a hermeneutical approach that stresses the literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises to Israel. That if God told Abraham, your people will, who descended from your body will inherit this land and they will live in it forever, that God meant people who are descended from your body will live in this land and inherit it forever. The New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament. If I could be a little bit silly, we hold to the view that you start reading at the beginning and go to the end. You don't start at the end and go backwards. We believe in progressive revelation. That the meaning of an Old Testament text is what it meant in that time to the original reader. That somebody reading a text written in an ancient time to an ancient person, if it's reinterpreted later, could viably accuse God of lying or tricking them if that meaning changes. The meaning of an Old Testament text is determined in its own historical and cultural context and is determinative for New Testament fulfillment. And they will always harmonize. Uh, For example, what we mean by progressive revelation is that in Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. How many persons of God do we see there? At least two. And in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural. Can you build a doctrine of the Trinity off Genesis 1 and 2? No. But does it fit perfectly as you learn of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament? Um, Absolutely. Can you build a doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament as a whole? I believe you can. Uh, There are places in Isaiah where God the Father speaks to God the Son and calls Him God. There are places where the Spirit is sent by God and yet treated as God. So you can build sort of a foggy um, uh, theology of the Trinity. Then when you get to uh, when you get to the Gospels, the Trinity explodes off the pages. But we would never say that what the New Testament teaches goes back and changes what the Old Testament meant. We, We would never say that. We call it progressive revelation. Progressive revelation from the New Testament doesn't nullify, it doesn't transfer, it doesn't reinterpret Old Testament passages in a way that 
violates or cancels the original authorial intent. And I think it's important for us to remember this, that people read Old Testament texts right after they were written. It's not just all about us. That they weren't somehow kept in a dusty cabinet somewhere, but they were read aloud. See also Nehemiah 8, where all the exiles who were back in Israel gather together and hear the word of God. And they're so, so enamored by this that they stand all day long to hear the word of God read to them. There were original readers. And I think that if they were here and you said, well, it's not about you and the meaning has changed now, they would say, I beg your pardon. That was the greatest day of my life to stand and hear God speak through his word. Why would you tell me that that's changed now? That when God said, if you will obey me, your people will live in this land forever and ever. Why would you try to take that away from me? I I don't have time to do this right now, but I could show with with great clarity historically that part of covenant theology um, has been affected by anti-Semitism. That is not not a shot across the bow. That's a historical fact. Um, and and going all the way back to Augustine, going back to Calvin. Calvin thought no Jew should ever have a part in God's program. He was very clear about that. So that's just history. That's just the way it is. So hermeneutics, we start at the beginning. And what Genesis 1-1 meant to an original reader, to the first time it was heard in 1406 BC when the, the law was read after Moses wrote it down, they affirm this and says, yes, we believe this. It did not change. Second foundational belief, the belief that the unconditional eternal covenants made with national Israel, this is the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, must be fulfilled literally with national Israel. Now, are you participating in the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Yes, you are. We may participate in, we may even partially fulfill these covenants. That doesn't mean we took over Israel. That doesn't mean we're the new Israel. How do you participate in the Abrahamic covenant? Well, God made some promises to Abraham. One of them was that he would, uh, he would create a chosen nation from him and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. How have you been blessed through a descendant of Abraham? We worship Christ. The descendants. So, yes, you're participating in the Abrahamic covenant. How about the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant says that God will have a man descended from David who will sit on the throne of Israel for all time. 2 Samuel 7 makes this promise. How do you benefit from this? The book of Revelation says that all believers will go to visit Christ on his throne during the, the, the millennium and then obviously in the final state. So you benefit from a Davidic king. We worship Christ as the king of all the kings. We don't say, well, that's, that's just for the Jews. No, that's for us too. And then the new covenant, obviously we participate in the new covenant. We, we receive the Lord's table um, every few Sundays here to be reminded of the new covenant. But what's the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant? We're just at the beginning point. The ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant the very last message I'm going to preach in Ezra and Nehemiah is actually from Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33 because you have in the middle of that section the new covenant promises, I will, I will write my law in your heart, I will give you my spirit, I will make a new nation of you and on either side you have the millennial kingdom happening. That is undeniable. It's, you have to do uh, hermeneutic gymnastics to get away from that. So 
we have begun the new covenant, but by the way, who were the first 3,000 people to be saved under the new covenant? Was it Gentiles? Nope, it was Jews, right? It took a while for the Gentiles to start getting caught up. So those are, those are two foundational beliefs. Here's a third one. Similarly, a belief in salvation and restoration of Israel. And I would say that only dispensationalism affirms both the salvation and restoration of Israel. I, I think some non-dispensationalists affirm a national salvation of Israel, but only dispensationalism says that they will be restored as a nation with prominence among the nations. And, and we've said this before. We would see uh, Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. Israel is the capital nation of the world. That has been clear throughout Scripture. <clears throat> um, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> For those who say God is not going to ever restore Israel as a nation, the last question that the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What an opportunity to say that's never going to happen. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm not going to tell you when. What's the implication? That he's going to do it. So that, that's one verse that kind of actually destroys the whole argument that God has done with national Israel. We would also say some more foundations. There we go. That the church is distinct from Israel. Dispensationalism holds that the church does not replace or continue Israel and is never referred to as Israel. And I would defy anybody to find one place in the New Testament where Israel is referred to as the church or the other way around. There isn't one. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament and did not begin until the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Old Testament promises to Israel cannot be entirely fulfilled with the church. It can't happen. Here's evidences often used by dispensationalists to show that the church is distinct from Israel. Now, I'll just give you seven of them. First one, Jesus viewed the church as future. Matthew 16, 18. It, you, that's one, his first comment about the church. He viewed it as future. An essential element of the church, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit placing you into the body of Christ. That didn't begin until the day of Pentecost. Number three, Christ became head of the church as a result of his resurrection. We have Ephesians 4, 15, which tells us this. Colossians 1, 18. Uh, Ephesians 1, 19 and following. He became the head of the church. If the church has always existed, then Christ was always the head of the church. But he became the head of the church. We could do some more. Spiritual gifts are associated with the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. These weren't given until the ascension of Christ. He even said that. He said, I will, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Ephesians 4 says that he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts. The new man nature of the church, Ephesians 2.15, shows that the church is a New Testament organism, not something incorporated into Israel. Now, have you, according to the book of Romans, been grafted into Israel? Yes, but uh, I grew up in an area where they did uh, grafting of different types of fruit trees all the time. And when you put an orange branch onto a lemon tree, it still bears oranges. It doesn't turn into a lemon. And so um, grafting means that we get the benefits of all of God's promises to Israel. It doesn't mean we're, 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 we're all the same though. 
The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and the New Testament apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20, Jesus never says that the foundation of the church is the covenant of grace or the covenant of the redemption or the covenant of the works or the church in the Old Testament. The foundation of the church, Christ, the apostles, the prophets. The author of the book of Acts, Luke, keeps Israel and the church distinct. One uh, theologian named Fruchtenbaum says this, quote, In the book of Acts, both Israel and the church exist simultaneously. The term Israel is used 20 times and ecclesia, church, 19 times, yet the two groups are always kept distinct. If the church is the new Israel, then why didn't they become one in the book of Acts? We have the multiple sense of the seed of Abraham. The multiple sense of the seed of Abraham. We have ethnic Jews, Romans 9, 10, 11. The seed of Abraham, everybody descended from Abraham. You also have all people spiritually related to God by faith, Romans 4, Galatians 3. That doesn't mean that those who are spiritually related, are you spiritually related to Abraham? Yes, Galatians 3 calls him your spiritual father. Why? Because he was saved by faith just like you are. But it doesn't mean we take over all the promises to the physical seed of Abraham to to believing Jews. Oh, by the way, do you know um, one group that is never covenantal are Messianic Jews. Uh, They have a real problem with covenant theology. And there's a lot of really good organizations, uh, Friends Friends of Israel and uh, Jews for Jesus and so forth. You ask them about this stuff, you'll, you'll see a little bit of ire. That How dare you say that Gentiles take over God's promises to Israel? Now, here's a, here's a frequent argument that you might hear. Are you saying that God has two different peoples? No. God saves everyone by grace through faith, right? And in the book of Isaiah, he says he's going to save Israel. He also says he's going to save Assyria. He also says he's going to save Egypt. He also says he's going to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He makes distinction. When, when was the first time nations are spoken of as distinct? In Genesis 2, the land of Havilah, the Garden of Eden. The Garden wasn't called Eden. The Garden was in the country called Eden. And when's the last time we see nations in the, in the Bible? Revelation 22, the kings of the nations will bring their, bring their glory, bring their wares, their offerings to the king. So nations has always been a part of God's plan. And if you ask a covenant theologian, do you believe in the final state that there will be nations? And you can show them Revelation 22. Most of them will be honest and say, yes, I do believe there are nations in the final state on new earth. And do you believe that there is a literal new Jerusalem? Now you get to a problem because most of them will say no. They'll say new Jerusalem is the church. And where do they get this? Revelation 21, I saw new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. Well, see, that's the bride of Christ. That's a pretty big stretch. Uh, when you say something's like a bride, it just means it's beautiful. That's all it means. It looks as good as it, as it ever has. Um, so if they say, well, are you, you saying there's two different peoples? No, there's one people of God, all saved by grace through faith. And a lot of those people are Jews and most of those people are Gentiles. That's, that's an easy distinction to make. You don't have to be backed into that corner. Here's some other key beliefs that dispensationalists have. The authority of Scripture. 
And, and to be fair, uh, covenant theologians would say exactly the same thing, and they do believe that. It's just that we interpret Scripture differently. We start at the beginning and go to the end. They start at the end and go to the beginning. A belief in dispensations, that God has, has phases in His redemptive plan. Um, these phases have similarities, they have dissimilarities, or what theologians call continuities and discontinuities. There's a lot of varieties to that, that understanding. Uh, we have a high emphasis on Bible prophecy. And I will admit, I'll be the first to admit, the dispensationalists have a reputation for being a little bit nutty about Bible prophecy. Yes, it is the dispensationalists that in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in particular had TV shows where they had their Bible open on one hand and the, and the newspaper open on the other. And, they, and, and even some of those older dispensationalists are going crazy with Russia uh, invading Ukraine now. Oh, the Antichrist is coming. His name is Putin and, and, and all of this. Uh, so I understand that's the reputation we have. However, we don't swing the pendulum the other way and say that prophecy doesn't matter. It does matter. It's one-third of our Bible. Now, we would say that the next thing that happens prophetically, and there are no signs leading up to it, the next thing that happens prophetically is the rapture of the church. Nothing to look for. So when you see uh, all the horrible things happening in the world, does that mean Christ is about to return? I hope so. But I'm not going to stand up in here and, and say, well, uh, Habakkuk 3 is actually talking about Ukraine and Russia. That's just crazy. Um, I listened to a sermon on Habakkuk 3 once that, that it was actually all about America. I got up and left. I said, you got to be kidding me. So I understand we have that reputation. I, I, I get that. Um, but covenant theologians have a reputation of burning people at the stake 400 years ago too. So we'll, we'll call it even on that. We are characterized primarily by a belief in premillennialism. Premillennialism says that Christ will bring his church home and, and we won't get into the details of, of, uh, uh, of the rapture and exactly when that happens. But generally speaking, the church will be taken home, brought back to earth, and then Christ will set up his kingdom. As opposed to postmillennialism, which says that the church will bring the kingdom in and then Christ will return. What do we call post-millennials today? Millennialism. We call that social justice movement. So, so no, we don't, we don't believe in that. That's not always the case, but generally speaking, dispensationalism is characterized by pre-millennial uh, and I would say uh, pre-tribulational rapture as well. Real quick, I'm going to get to... Um, some non-essential elements, and then we'll be done for today. I didn't give any of the good answers, but we'll, we'll get to that next time. So see, you have to come back. Non-essential elements. The term dispensation, I, I, I wish they would just get rid of it, to be honest with you, because it's, it's seen as a dividing point. But I would say this, all Christian theologians acknowledge the concept of a dispensation, of eras of God's work. You know where one ends and the next one begins? In the Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. Everybody agrees on that. There are at least two dispensations, Old Testament and New Testament, or we might call, uh, some would say, pre-fall and post-fall as well. So there's lots of ways to divide that. Um, the number of dispensations, that's not essential to the system. The classic number is seven. I don't care. You, you won't ever really hear me talking about the dispensations because it's not that essential. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism deals with God, man, sin, and salvation. Dispensationalism deals with Israel, ecclesiology, and eschatology. So, so the two are, are similar, 
but uh, not completely over, overrun by each other. There are some variations in dispensationalism, and I, I don't have a slide for this, but don't worry about it. There's the classical or traditional dispensationalism that God is pursuing two different purposes. One is earthly, one is heavenly, or one is heavenly, one is earthly. There are on earth today, the number of people who believe that is precisely zero, probably. Um, there's revised or modified dispensationalism, still an emphasis on two peoples of God, church and Israel, both receive salvation, but with different roles and responsibilities and that the church and Israel exist together in the millennium and eternal state, um, we would be closest to that camp. And then progressive dispensationalism, we would not hold to, that there's no functional distinction between Israel and the church, although they're identified distinctly, and that Jesus right now at this moment is reigning on the throne of David, and then he'll transfer that to earth. Uh, again, if he's reigning on the throne of David, the throne of David is 100% of the time in the Bible said to be in Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? It's on earth. So uh, those are just some, some varieties there. So what we'll do next time is I'll do a critique of covenant theology, some of the major problems, um, particularly with things like New Testament priority in the church. Can I give one last lesson? Can I take one more minute? One more minute? One more? <laughs> to give one last lesson. And we'll do this more in detail next time. I want you to trust your Bible that when you read the Bible and it makes a promise, generally speaking, believe what it says at face value. Could I say this? Nobody is born a covenant theologian. They have to be taught to be that way. They have to be taught to reinterpret the Old Testament. They have to be taught that the church is the new Israel. They have to be taught that Jesus is the new Israel. But if you will just read your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, uh, rinse and repeat, do that over and over again, I believe you would come to some logical conclusions. I don't think one person ever, by reading only the Bible, has ever come to the conclusion that Israel, God is done with Israel. I don't think anybody's ever come to that conclusion. Now, covenant theologians have a name for people who believe that the Bible is our sole source of authority. They call us biblicists. Meaning that, well, but there's also the Westminster Confession of, of Faith and that's important and there's historical uh, theology with, with Calvin and Luther and these guys are important and you need them. I understand where they're coming from, but that comes really close to Catholic tradition as being equal to Scripture. So if somebody says, you're just a biblicist, I, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I only know one person who's ever come to... Uh, the conclusions that I, that, that I taught you this morning just by reading the Bible. And that person came to this conclusion by reading the Bible, getting really, really excited about books like Zechariah and Daniel and Revelation and taking pages and pages of notes and seeing how they go together and finding cross-references and never even knowing there was something called a study Bible, never even knowing there was something called a commentary and ending up with a, a list of here's what I think Scripture says. Um, and this person ended up with a list that says that the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. The church will be taken into heaven for seven years. Uh, the, the saints will be resurrected. 
Um, and for seven years, there'll be a great tribulation on earth led by a guy named Antichrist. Then Christ will return and judge the world. He will judge the living uh, and he will kill every single person who rejected Christ. He will uh, then elevate all who followed Christ and survive the great tribulation. Saints will come down from heaven in their resurrected bodies to rule on earth. We will rule and reign alongside Christ for a thousand years. After that thousand years, Satan will be released from the pit in which he was put and he will then uh, lead one last rebellion because all the survivors of the great tribulation began having little sinful children and eventually a thousand years later they'll rebel. At the end of that time, God will uh, wipe away the heavens and the earth and they will, he will then institute the great white throne judgment. All of the unsaved dead will be resurrected according to Daniel chapter 12. They will face the judgment of God in resurrected bodies to have bodies in which to be thrown into the lake of fire which is the second death and then the new eternal state will happen, new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem coming down with God's people most likely in it and then populating a new world for all time and for all eternity. And that was, those conclusions were come to by reading the Bible only before that person even knew there was such a thing as a commentary. And that's why I'm a dispensationalist because that's the conclusion I came to. And when I was 19 years old, I sat under a man named Tommy Nelson for the very first time. And his first sermon was why I'm a dispensationalist. And he went through all these things and tears coming down my face because that's what, the, that's what I believe. And that was the first time I ever heard anybody teach it because that's what the Bible says. My lesson to you is believe your Bible. Believe your Bible. God will not leave you in the dark. Take notes, study, pray, and you will learn and you will grow. I don't think anybody comes to covenantal conclusions unless somebody tells them to and that concerns me does that make sense forgive my uh for my emotion over this but it's a big deal to me because this is the only revelation we have from god therefore we don't mess with it we take it as is and if there's a question then we leave it a question we don't answer that question from human wisdom all right lesson done we'll we'll do some of the uh critiques next week and we'll have fun with that let's pray Our Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. A five-year-old who has just learned to read can open his or her little Bible that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they can believe that there is a God who is a creator. A five-year-old can open the Bible and come to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And know that God sent his son to the world to save sinners. We thank you for the truth. We believe in, in the clarity. We believe in the clear nature of the word of God. But we would ask you, make it clearer to us still. Thrill our hearts with these truths. This day as we worship you together, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.